Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Rebecca. Guess what? Are we hosting a podcast or what? I was going to say, we have our own podcast. This has been like a dream since I was a little ACHS staff human. And now glad. I'm like a six-year-old staff human. I'm glad you didn't say from a little person because the technology wasn't there. When you first started listening to podcasts, what caught your eye? I love news radio. So I'd rather be listening to somebody talking and learning about something than I would listening to music, weirdly enough. How about you? I love Harry Potter. And so I've read the books a number of times and, and they don't change, you know, they're the books. So like, I need more Harry Potter. So that was actually my first podcast. Your very first one? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. I mean, that's a wonderful uh, introduction to the podcasting world. <laughs> it's a niche market. And I think that's where ours is going to be so amazing because there is no other podcast out there dealing with Anoka County history. Exactly. And I want to know more. All we are the, here to fill a void. All of the things that could keep you company doing the dishes or on your commute. Or petting the cats. Or because dogs, too. Although, no, I'm kidding. We like the dogs. That's fine. <laughs> I'm going to edit that out. I'm going to have people sending us hate mail because we don't have dogs on the show. <laughs> and tangent over. Ooh. What are we going to do for our first episode. We have one of our board members, Daryl Lawrence. He wrote an article for our History 21 newsletter. So now we have History 21, the podcast. We have History 21, the newsletter. So Daryl wrote an article for the newsletter, and it was about how he trailed through Ancestry.com, finding dead people that he was related to. That took him on all sorts of magical paths until he discovered a great, great uncle that was gay like him. It brought this whole new perspective to making friends with dead people and just how how magical it is to find a compatriot through that timeline of history. Well, let's listen to you and Daryl Lawrence, ACHS board member also of the Bell Museum. We are with Daryl Lawrence. He's a resident of East Bethel. He's been on our board of directors for a year. And uh, as a regular full-time paid gig, he's the facilities manager down at the Bell Museum. A human of many hats, sir. Welcome. Yeah, yeah. And um, my path to getting to be a museum facility manager isn't as direct as one may imagine. I started off in higher education working on the residence life side of things. And I transitioned into the operations side of housing at a university level and then applied those experiences to then work with research buildings. And now I am with a museum. I was really lucky and happy to find a place that melded my professional experiences with something I'm really passionate about, which is the preservation of history. It's a bit of a longer commute down to the Twin Cities every day, but it's well worth it to be able to see education go out to everyone within the state of Minnesota or those who are visiting on a daily basis. It's really enriching and fun. 
No, that's awesome. And you're one of those people that's always been interested in history. Yeah. Stretching back as far as I can remember, I have, I'm sitting here in my library and I have tons of books and I have books that I've had since elementary school on U.S. presidents. I started off reading about stuff and then that really got the gears turning about my own family and my own history and things like that. It was a natural progression for me. It wasn't something that really surprised me. So do you have an award badge that you get to wear that dubs you the family historian? No, it's, it's something that really just organically develops. Something I was thinking about the other day and how I ended up with everything, um, because family historians basically get a lot of stuff. I remember my grandparents had a spare bedroom, and there was a little wooden box filled with postcards in there. And these were postcards from my grandma's mom. They were from the 1910s and the 1920s. And I remember just sorting through them first. They're graphically beautiful. Postcards back then are just astounding. And I encourage folks, if you haven't seen postcards from the early 1900s, just look at them. It's like a whole little movie can be played out in one graphic image. I remember digging through there and seeing different messages, different years, different names. And that really compelled me to start just quizzing my grandma at an early age. Who are these people? How are we related? What did they do? And a lot of the answers especially from way back then, is, well, I'm not sure. Here's a few things I remember. And one of the big mysteries that had bothered me for decades is that there were names scratched out on these postcards. We didn't know whose name was scratched out. And it's something I really dug into, and it's research I had done over the past couple of years. But thankfully, One of the great things that comes with being stuck at home so much is that I'm stuck with the family collections. And I figured out the scratched out name was my great grandma's first husband that we didn't even know that she had. It was really interesting to finally figure out through a lot of detective work, just piecing things together and figuring out she had a first husband. They got a divorce. Then I I wrote about it. It was more, more for me to do something with all of that knowledge so it didn't just sit with me. And you tell these little anecdotes like, hey, did you know that Grandma Effie had a first husband? Maybe in 50 years, one person will remember that. So I really wanted to get it out on the page, tell the saga of my great-grandma and her mother, my great-great-grandmother, how they were really powerful women just doing their own thing in a time when women really didn't do that a whole lot. I would think, too, in that circumstance, you need to be rather careful of falling into the trap of stereotypes. Yes, stereotypes are very hard because you're basing things off of things that are written. I have a letter from her ex-husband that insinuates things and she writes back and you're like, all right, well, I really wanted to promote her as this suffragette who wanted the vote and she was out for it. But that's a stereotype, because you're looking at a strong woman living within the 1910s, and you're like, she's a strong woman. Of course she would want the vote. I don't know that because she never wrote about it. No one wrote it about her, so I can't apply that stereotype or that assumption in telling her story. I would ask my grandma a few questions, but they did not play into the narrative because everything I exposed, she had no idea about, because her mom hid everything so well that she had no clue that any of these things happened with her mom or her grandma. 
I love the idea of surprises coming up in family narratives. And you were saying too, that in writing and in researching this, you actually discovered a few uh, secrets that you weren't expecting and from some sources that you weren't expecting either. Yeah, just those, and it all started with those postcards with a scratched out name. And that was the name Hank. And that was her first husband. I was really lucky that she kept a lot of things too. To my great benefit, I can tell a complete story because she kept everything. She kept her divorce papers, but she was smart enough to clip out everything except the file number. I called the county where they got the divorce and said, hey, this is really weird, but I think my great-grandma got a divorce. And it was in the 1920s. I have her name, but I have her maiden name and her married name when she married a second time. And I have a file number. I remember they didn't even put me on hold. The woman who was helping me said, hey, hang on one second. I'm going to search our database. And she set the receiver down on her desk. And I could hear her turn to someone next to her and say, the craziest thing is happening right now. This guy is calling about his great-grandma's divorce and has a file number. And it's from 1926. It goes to show that as a family historian, you have to know what is at your disposal. You have to look for those clues. It, it was such a breadcrumb trail. That file number brought up the fact that she was married to a man named Henry Johnson or Hank. Great, that gives me another touchstone where I can try to unravel more or basically tear down the wall that she herself had built. But part of me feels that she left enough clues behind for it to be discovered one day. If she really wanted to hide it, she would have had everything destroyed. And she lived in the country. She lived on a farm. They burned their trash. She could have easily on any single given day taken that packet of letters along with the divorce papers, thrown them in the fire, never had a second thought about them. But she didn't. So I think she wanted the story told and understood eventually, but not enough for her to actually tell it to anyone herself. She wanted someone else to figure it out at some point when she was long gone and wouldn't have to deal with the ramifications. So lesson learned, if you don't want your great-great-grandchild snooping around, burn it all, right? Yes, just be aware of the current fire regulations and if you need a permit. (laughs) Do it in a safe manner, people. (laughs) If people were to go to the show notes for the podcast, they would find an article that you just wrote for our History 21 newsletter, which is a a members-only perk. How would you kind of set them up and see what they're going to find? Their names were Elmer and Delia, and they got married in the 19-teens. I think it was 1918. They had a son named Jack. They lived in rural Anoka County out here in Ham Lake. And Delia was a school teacher. Elmer did odd jobs. He would work on one of the family farms. And Delia tragically got cancer. She died in the late 1920s. And that was that. I mean, Jack was an only child. He never had children himself. So it's really a dead family line. In trying to fill out as many details as possible, I went to Ancestry, which is a wonderful resource. They sort of have a stranglehold on a whole lot of stuff, but there are free resources out there. I chose to pay a monthly fee, and sometimes I do that. I will dart in for a month 
gather as many facts as possible, and then cancel for another three years until I know that enough stuff will have accumulated for me to figure out something new again. Sometimes it gives you little hints. So I thought, all right, I'll click on one of these little leaves that wave at you on the screen, letting you know that a new piece of information is available. One of them was a family tree record match. So it matched someone else's family tree. I went and looked, and there was actually a picture of Elmer and Delia I had never seen this picture. I don't have a copy of this picture. And I thought that odd because, again, their family line is dead. There would be no reason for anyone else, in my mind, to have anything. I reached out to this person. I was rather brazen. The gist of the message was, hey, it's very odd that you have a picture of these people. I didn't know that anyone else knew they existed. Who are you? I waited a little while, and then I got a response from a woman named Nora. She is the, let me think, great-niece of Delia. So her grandmother was Delia's sister, one of the four Sorensen sisters from Anoka. We got to talking and delving into what we knew so we could compare notes, which was really cool, because she's her family's historian. So she has all their letters. I have all of our letters and pictures, we would scan things in and send it back and forth. It helped us fill in knowledge gaps on both sides, which was really fulfilling. You're like pen pals with dead people. Yes, exactly. And we are the only people who can translate for them. So Nora and I had a great job and literal translation. Nora was translating from Danish into English and then sending me the transcriptions of those letters so we could both understand what was going on. Well, some of the transcription now is just getting through the cursive handwriting, too. Oh, absolutely, especially Germanic script from back then. And those blunt pencils where all the E's look the same. <laughs> yes, like, what are they doing? Are they all using construction pencils? Is <laughs> and, it, I mean, I don't expect them to all have sharpeners at home, but do they just have very dull stones that we're, they were chipping away at these construction pencils so they could write letters back and forth. And then did they take it and like smear it with some lard or something just to make it really difficult. I'm not going to be able to unsee this now. Every letter I, I look at in the future, I'm going to think of your construction pencil. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's Elmer and Delia. Um, she died at the University of Minnesota Hospital. Elmer never remarried. And then Jack was actually living with his paternal aunt and uncle. So again, another great, great uncle of mine. Because they were a childless couple, it was Delia's wish that Jack grow up in that type of environment. And actually, one of her fears that she articulated to her parents was Jack growing up with a stepmother. That's not something she wanted for Jack's life. So she made, basically, her in-laws agree to take him and raise him right and make sure he got to high school. And you, in working on all of this, now Jack is essentially your grandma's cousin, correct? Yes, correct. Okay. And you, you found a whole bunch of other reasons why he's a special character for you. Yeah, um, because you do find these touchstones. You find people in your family history that you really relate to for one reason or another. There are some people I relate to because they have really good recipes. You make them and you're like, these people have good taste. I'm good. Yes, they are my people. This is my tribe. Bring and on the chocolate. Yes, chocolate or like 
very odd salads that you don't think the combination is going to work out right. And you're like, why are you warming up these ingredients? But then they work out. And Jack is special because he, like myself, was gay. So I am gay. He was gay. It's very interesting to sort of have that confirmed in a family member when you're looking through your family tree. It's something that my grandma sort of knew, acknowledged. It wasn't a big deal to her. It's just that's part of who Jack was. It really didn't raise any red flags for her because he lived so far away. He lived down in Florida for his adult life. Well, and being that he was born in 1921, I think putting into perspective what it meant to be gay at that time period is important as well. I agree. I can't even imagine because if you look around the country and the world right now, there are still so many struggles that queer people are facing. If you dial that back a hundred years, just think about it. You couldn't really be out. There is nowhere to be out. And it was illegal to be out. I, I can't imagine what that world would have lived like as he was growing up and realizing as he was in school here in Anoka County, and then he went to high school in North Minneapolis, what that would have felt like on the inside, where he realized he was different, that he didn't have an interest in girlfriends and going steady. And then throw into the mix, okay, he was born in 1921, he graduated in like 1939 from high school, then right around the corner you have World War II where he served in the army. There was no such thing as even don't ask, don't tell back then. It was just, nope, you're all straight, right? Just ignore. Yeah. So then you have that in the mix, too, where he's part of the greatest generation that's doing all these incredible things for the country and for the world. And he is identified as a gay man. It boggles my mind how he would have navigated a society that wasn't necessarily accepting of this. It must have been very difficult for him to feel comfortable in his own skin around the family sometimes. Since you don't know him, he was so far away in Florida, you can't really just call up his next of kin or his best friend and get that information filled in. No, and I know that he had a partner of quite a long time down in Florida, and I know his name, and I added him as his spouse for all intents and purposes within Ancestry. It's nice to at least have that to think about and have that as a further avenue to explore. When do they get together? I don't know, but it's something I can probably figure out approximately through research. Or as we like to call it, stalking. Yes, I mean, the internet is a wonderful tool for family historians and genealogists because you can really, there are rabbit holes. I, I did talk to Nora and engage her in a discussion through our Pentel relationship about Jack's sexuality and how I really embrace the fact that I have someone in the family tree that was gay. She said that her grandmother, so that would have been Jack's aunt, was uh, totally accepting. It was just a matter of fact, yep, Jack's gay. But there was feelings within his mom's side of the family that he was ungrateful for everything that they had done for him when he was growing up. And that's the reason why he moved so far away. Take that for what you want. I think he moved so far away so he could truly be himself and not really be chained to the expectations that his family had of him. I'm unaware of any expectations his dad's side of the family had of him. Um, They're the ones who raised him. But his 
mom's side of the family, it seems like they expected a bit more. And that may be tied to who his mom was because Delia was the favorite sibling. She was described as the most loved Sorensen sister. So everyone loved her. And that's a lot of weight to deal with when, you know, your mom dies when you're not even in elementary school. Getting to know Jack through circumstantial evidence and through situational evidence through the historical record, that's still possible. Yeah, it is. There are a lot of facts. What I'm operating with is what a couple of his relatives still had to say about him that remember him. Another one said he was always a lot of fun to hang out with when he'd visit. So I know those aspects of his personality. I have the luxury of just having to dig into some of the more concrete facts and um, trying to track down what his life would have been like being an out gay man in Florida from like the 1950s onwards. What was that scene like? I have no clue. But there are a lot of great resources for so many circumstances and so many different populations now. I think you can really turn to secondary research when it comes to LGBT history, what it was like living in Florida. So if, if people were to want to find some of those resources specific to the LGBT community, do you have any on hand that you would suggest? I would see what's recommended in terms of historical resources from places like GLAD and things like that, because they can point you to history that is told very well, written very well, and based in research and fact. It's not going to be a puff piece that you run across on the internet that maybe it's on BuzzFeed. I don't think you should go for the the BuzzFeed version of any history. I would start with the advocacy organizations and seeing where they can lead you, because odds are they're going to be connected to a historical entity that also helps really publicize and advocate for the history of queer folks. Oh, it's neat that those resources are available now. I, I knew before this, you and I had kind of conjectured a little bit about what it must have been like to be a middle-aged human watching the youth coming-of-age movement um, in the gay community and yeah. what type of a response Jack may have had to that, too. Yeah, because if you're thinking about Stonewall and things like that, Jack was in his middle age by then. And how did he react to that from afar? What did he think of the scene at like Studio 54, where all types of people were embraced within a, the disco culture? Because he, he may have gone clubbing in Florida, but I don't think he necessarily was the demographic that would have felt so open and freed at that point. Because it, you're looking at identities and identities are so personal. So he was a kid from Minnesota that was also an army veteran of World War II. And then he was a gay man in Florida. There's so much in there that you, every person has this within them. They have this stew of identity where no single stew is the same. So you have to look at it through several lenses. I don't know how he would have reacted. I hope someday to maybe find letters or something. That'd be fantastic if somewhere there was a resource where his partner had kept letters or journals or something like that so I can understand. We were also, just to kind of wrap up a little bit, you know, just to make sure that there's a mechanism in place 
in order to continue to preserve the family history, right? There has to be a place that you can leave all of this or people or a historical society, or there has to be a mechanism so that it continues down the generations. Yeah, I think it's really important that if someone is a family historian, or even if you have a small collection, you don't need to have volume to be a family historian. You don't need actual artifacts to be a family historian. The self-elected position can be tough, but all you really need to start off with is a very basic family tree, and then you start filling things in. The second really big point is digitizing things. I think it's really important to make sure that you have things digital and having things in multiple locations is very important as well. So I'm going to start scanning in a bunch of pictures and letters, but I'm going to have it on multiple flash drives distributed to multiple people. So if one ever fails, there's another record out there. So my hours and hours of scanning isn't for nothing. I mean, that's a very selfish thing, but it's also a very real thing that you can spend a whole lot of time on this stuff only to lose it. And you don't want that time to be wasted. Yeah, those fires, files corrupt. They're only zeros and ones. That's Exactly. People are pretty on board with not storing things on floppy disks. If you have a floppy disk drive, don't save your family history information to it because it's not going to last. <laughs> we found a bunch of those at the History Center a few weeks back. <laughs> <laughs> Daryl, this has been amazing. Thank you for sharing your story and taking the time to talk with us and be on our very number one podcast. You are historical in and of yourself here. Well, thank you very much. I always consider myself to be historical and somewhat um, moldy oldie. Onward, sir. Onward. Read all about it in the Noka County Library Minute. I'm Haley Coble. I'm an adult services librarian at the Northtown branch of the Anoka County Library. I wanted to provide you all with some extra resources that you can access at the library to get more information. The first one is A Queer History of the United States by Michael Bronski. This book was the winner of a 2012 Stonewall Book Award in nonfiction. It's more than just a who's who of queer history. It's a book that radically challenges how we understand American history. So it looks at primary source documents, literature, cultural histories, and looks at the breadth of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender history from 1492 to the 1990s. So it spans all of American history, which I thought was kind of neat. Another one is Queer Twin Cities, Twin Cities GLBT Oral History Project, The Gay Revolution, The Story of the Struggle by Lillian Faderman. And I did add also on the list, The Stonewall Reader by Jason Bauman. This call number of 306.766 is a good one to look in if you're looking for queer history. We do have a lot more at the library of more personalized accounts, a lot of memoirs, a lot of LGBTQ literature. For this, I just wanted to focus on some of the more historical sources that we had in the library to get you kind of that 20th century queer history overview. Get those library cards and reserve your copy today. I love-
of all of the different places that his research took on this this journey. I'm definitely that person at the city hall that he called up, putting the phone down, <laughs> saying, you have no idea who was on the phone just now. <laughs> all of these journeys he's going to try to compile into a book and self-publish as well, so we can keep everybody up to date on that publication schedule. It is such a gift, the technology available, so that people can take their family histories and make it accessible to people in their family by self-publishing and creating these things that live on outside of their own heads. But a book is a big project. And it's full of words. And some people don't like putting words together in sentences. What would you do if you didn't want to do that? Saying in a totally not example way. I think one of the other things that people could do, especially for Christmas, that would be a fairly simple project to pull together for gifts even, would be to take some of the family photos they have laying around and scan them in, send them off to Google or another printing company, and and just get a really simple book of images printed. Or even if you're not one to create the narrative, maybe you have a set of letters and you're just transcribing them word for word because they're in cursive and you know how to read the cursive and that is a skill. It's a whole nother language right now. Exactly. And like you and Daryl talked about the construction pencils. (laughs) (laughs) We've got several things in the collection like that where the, the letters are just transcribed and put into a three ring binder even. It doesn't have to be anything terribly fancy. No. For those that are interested in hearing Daryl's full recorded interview, because we had to cut it down a little bit for the episode, it will be available in the vault on our website, anocacountyhistory.org. Or if you're looking for more information, we have our library book recommendations on the show notes page of our website. Well, I'll see you in two weeks, Rebecca, for our second episode. Will you meet me back here? I will. It's a date. Okay. Bye. Thanks for stopping in, everyone. If you have a question or you would like to share your own story with us, you can find us at anocacountyhistory.org. We are all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all who scroll by. For our members and donors, you can find special access to podcast extras, as well as the latest digital resources at our vault located on the website. History 21 is a production of the Anoka County Historical Society. Remember, the present is the past of the future.